I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James and joining me on today's episode are Rory and Mike from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about the impact that Russian sanctions will have on companies like Apple, Coca-Cola and McDonald's, why Elon Musk is under investigation by the SEC for insider trading, and a tough year that newly IPO'd companies like Oakley, Olaplex and Confluent have had. Okay, lads, welcome to this week's Stock Club podcast and happy St. Patrick's Day. This will be going out on March 17th, so happy St. Patrick's Day to both of you and everyone listening. You know, three of us are, are Irish men, which means that we've inevitably lived abroad for a vast amount of our lives. Rory, you lived in Australia for a while. Mike, you lived in the US. So in celebration of St. Patrick's Day, I want to hear what was the worst Irish stereotype you ever faced uh, wherever you lived. Mike, I might come over to you first. I've noticed you've been saying St. Patty's Day instead of Paddy's Day. Is that because you've been in America so long? <laughs> yeah. Um, ooh, that's a tough one. I, I think my I have an annoying thing with my name where Americans mispronounce my name a lot. They say O'Mahony instead of O'Mahony. So yeah. uh, <laughs> that one really gets under my skin. And then we started we started doing the audio insights and it pronounces my name that way as well. Yeah, the, the AI bot pronounced it O'Mahony. So <laughs> yeah, maybe you so. should just, just give in. Rory, what about you? Or have you just lived up to every stereotype? <laughs> um, trying to think what ones. Um, so, I mean, I was in Southern States of America once and I told a man my name was Rory and he kind of went like, what? And just decided to call me Ray for the rest of the time he knew me because <laughs> uh, he just kind of gave up. I think probably like one of the weirdest ones, particularly in America and Australia actually was like the concept of Irish cuisine. Like I, I have never seen a corned beef in my life. <laughs> yeah. I have never eaten that. <laughs> Bacon and cabbage, never touched it. You know, it's these foods that I think people around the world think Irish people eat. I've never seen them. <laughs> Yeah, we, we we have a lot of things. We don't really have a cuisine. Like the closest thing I could think of is coddle, which you call cuisine. Cuisine or a war crime. Coddle, <laughs> coddle is not a cuisine. For, for those who don't know, coddle is boiled sausages and potatoes in like the lightest broth you can possibly imagine. Like it's a, it's like water with like a pinch of salt. It's it's our foot. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually been challenged by some um, English friends to try and make coddle a tasty dish, which I'm researching at the moment. I think Nigella Lawson is getting in trouble. She brought out a coddle recipe. I saw that yesterday. I thought she was listening <laughs> into me. Nigella, you're cancelled. <laughs> Don't try make coddle tasty. It is what it is. Let's move on and talk about some more serious matters then. So it might seem a bit uncouth to talk about the ongoing invasion of Ukraine in terms of business, but it's hard to escape the fact over the past few weeks that most major companies in the US have now pulled their operations out of Russia completely to protest against its actions in the region. From the companies that we cover here at My Wall Street alone, we've seen the likes of Coca-Cola, Apple, Starbucks, all suspending their business in the region, while other companies like Facebook or Meta uh, and Google have also frozen things like ads and subscriptions within the region. Rory, without trying to trivialise you know, the whole 
situation that's going on in Ukraine. As investors, what should we make of these companies voluntarily removing themselves from this market over 140 million people? Like, Can we actually expect to see these sanctions reflected in the balance sheets when these companies report in a quarter's time? Yeah, so and this was an interesting, you kind of put this to me to do the research for, um, and it was a kind of interesting process of going through it. Uh, at the moment, according to Jeffrey Sonnenfield and his research team at Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute, around 380 businesses were spent on operations in Russia. I went through kind of a couple of kind of big names, and I think you'd actually be pretty surprised by how little an impact this is going to have directly on those businesses. And mm. um, so, you know, Apple, for example, has no physical stores in Russia, and the revenue from the country is estimated to be about 2% of their total sales. Uh, so, you know, that's I think that's pretty incredible for what is the largest country in the world with 140, 150 million people. Coca-Cola was obviously kind of a big uh, name that pulled out about one to two percent of its revenue comes from Russia. Pepsi, by the way, is more than double that. I think Pepsi kind of got into Russia a bit earlier than Coca-Cola and, and have a kind of bigger, um, bigger footprint there. McDonald's was obviously like a really big, I think when you come down to kind of restaurants, that's mm. kind of where things start. You start to see like actual potential uh, impacts. McDonald's is going to close uh, 847 restaurants. Um, most of those, I think nearly all of them are actually company owned, so not franchised. Now, of course, you know, like the first opening, of, like the opening of its first restaurant, which was over 32 years ago, this closure is kind of much more about burgers. You know, the first McDonald's opening was kind of, greeted by hour-long queues and, and seemed to be this really kind of symbolic moment in the history of Russia, this kind of, I suppose, brief honeymoon it had with westernization. Yeah. Uh, now, the company's going to continue to pay salaries and benefits for employees for the time being, and it is, it's the most exposed brand of the kind of big food chains in Russia. But all those units um, in Russia operate, uh, they kind of represent around 9% of the company's overall revenue. Um, but Importantly, only about two to three percent of their operating profits. Companies kind of like Yum Brands and Burger King, they come in at about two percent of sales. Starbucks, which this was a surprising one, Starbucks only has 130 locations in all of Russia. Wow, there's more Starbucks in the state of Missouri. Uh, really, <laughs> yeah. and all the Starbuckses are licensed to partners, so it's, it's not even you know, it's about one percent of revenue, probably even less than that. And it's it's essentially an accounting error when it comes to the to Starbucks's bottom line. What's kind of, it's it's kind of harder to calculate the the longer term impacts going to have on inflation and food prices is really what's what I think is driving a lot of kind of worry in the restaurant industry. We've already seen what's happened in both the U.S. and Europe in terms of gas prices. Obviously, Europe is far more dependent on Russian energy than the U.S. is. I think I saw it's only three percent of America's Russia or of America's energy. Um, comes from Russia, which is obviously now completely stopping now that it's been banned. Now here, with the disclaimer that I know very, very little about energy markets from what I have read, it seems not all oil is the same. So even though Russia only accounts for like 3% of America's use, it's not the same type of oil that America produces. And, and that's going to have to be sourced from other countries like Venezuela. And I think importantly, we have to remember that energy goes into everything. Everything you've ever bought in your life has cost energy to produce. And nowhere is that kind of more felt than in food. So we were already seeing inflationary pressure on energy. If you remember during the height of the pandemic, oil futures were actually trading below zero at one stage. Yeah. Um, in, at the, which point the, famous, my, the famous storing barrels of oil in your garage. Yeah, my partner actually asked me if that was a possibility. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> that was like uh, the most asked question in the app for a while, wasn't it? <laughs> what do I put was, it? Yeah, she was like, I've got space at the back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the confidence you're saying this with because Rebecca doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> she does listen to it, but she only listens to it when she's getting on a flight because it helps her sleep. So hopefully she'll be snoozed off by now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so that, that, that essentially stopped a lot of businesses from investing in energy. 2021 was the lowest year for new well discoveries since 1946. So when the economy reopened, there was already supply issues. Transportation costs were up. There was a lot of supply chain issues, which we've talked about ad nauseum at this stage. And this was all leading to a rise in commodity prices and things like corn and wheat. And this was all happening pre-invasion, remember. So in January, for example, annual food inflation was up 6.5% in Canada, which was the highest in more than a decade. Now, of course, Russia and Ukraine are major wheat exporters. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. The two countries produce about 30% of the world's wheat. Now, most of that is exported to places like the Middle East and North Africa. But of course, we live in a global economy now. So a supply shortage in one region pushes up prices everywhere. So here's a good example. In the first five trading days of March, wheat prices went up by the most permitted by the Chicago Board of Trade. That's, that's unprecedented. On top of that, Russia and Belarus are also large exporters of vital components in the production of fertilizers, things like potash, nitrogen, urea. Now we're kind of getting into macroeconomic territory, of which I am certainly no expert. But no, we want to hear more commodities, Rory. <laughs> Fro- frozen orange juice, come on. Uh, lean hogs. That's what. <laughs> lean hogs. But uh, no, I did hear that um, they're a huge exporter of nickel as well, and yeah. that is a vital component of the electric vehicle industry and batteries. So it'd be one to watch. I think Elon Musk is already complaining about supply chain constraints there too. Mm, yeah, I mean. Th- this is kind of one of those things where, you know, we don't know what the long term impact of this is because we really don't know how long this kind of brutal adventurism by KGB Karen is going to go on for and what possible kind of paths of reconciliation there will be after the fact. So it's very, very difficult to kind of judge what this is going to what this is going to mean for particularly kind of food prices and, and the restaurant industry long term. And as Mike said, you know, it stretches out into lots of other industries as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I suppose back to like the direct impact of these companies pulling out of Russia for this podcast and within the My Wall Street app as well, we've gotten so many questions about ESG investments over the years. So that is companies with good environmental, social and governance ratings. Not to sound too cynical about it, but do you think a lot of these companies when they pull out of Russia, they had this this kind of in mind that, you know, in, in making these decisions, there's a bit of, you know, looking good on the world stage uh, and and especially a decision made easier when it has such little direct impact on their bottom lines as you outlined there oh certainly i mean it's you know we've seen calls for boycotts of businesses that have refused to pull out um, mm. of russia and um, just to bring it kind of to a more um kind of local uh example chelsea football club uh is a big large football team in the premier league was owned by uh oligarch called um, Roman Abranovich. Since then, he has been sanctioned, which has put huge pressure on, on the football club in terms of what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. They're currently not even allowed to sell tickets to to their matches. But what's interesting is that their sponsors are now pulling uh, off their shirts. And so you've, you're going from kind of this view of, well, we're going to sanction this Russian oligarch owner to uh, brands like Three, which is a big mobile network in uh, in the UK and Ireland, and Hyundai saying we don't even want to be associated with the club. I mean, this is a club that's you know 
getting 100 years old as a, as a huge history. And so it's not, it's the, the impact is being felt not just on the club in terms of financial, but in terms of its, its status. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that's, that's sliding over into other, other football clubs in the UK now. And Newcastle was recently, was recently kind of invested in by the Saudi Investment Fund. Um, and so it's, it's bringing up all these questions about where is money coming from and, and, and who do people want to be aligned with when they come to, to stuff like this. Yeah, and like boycotts like this, they're not a new thing. We've seen, you know, decades ago, we saw boycotts against South Africa's apartheid system in the 80s. More recently, there's been BDS movements against Israeli goods, things like that. Does this kind of pressure actually work? Does this pressure from corporations and from consumers um, as well, does that tend to work in these situations? Well, grabbing at my history book, I think think sometimes they do work and sometimes they don't. I mean, you know, you've given an example there of South Africa where it did seem to work places like Iran, Iraq, Cuba, it hasn't worked, you know, so um, it's hard to really know. I mean, these are the most stringent sanctions that have ever been imposed on a country. And what's interesting is that we don't, you know, because there's been a kind of media blackout in Russia, we really don't have a sense of what the impact is on the ground. So we don't know how this is impacting day-to-day people in Russia who a lot of them probably are, are unaware of what's happening because it's so because the the level of censorship and propaganda in Russian state uh, media. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, well, what's scary as well is that <clears throat> you're saying this might be the worst sanctions we've ever seen. What was another uh, point of that was after World War One, the sanctions put on Germany. Let me see what came from that. So you would be very worried from a like wider historical event perspective of whether they work or not, but what could be the long term effects of them. Yeah, the isolation of a country completely from, exactly. from the global system. Especially yeah. one with 5,000 nuclear weapons. Yeah. Well, let's move on on that light note. Uh, and, and we're moving on to a new story. And of course, it's Elon Musk again. So Rory, for this story, I've actually decided to resurrect a phrase that you used a couple of years ago when the when Solar City was bought by Tesla. And I'm going to call this story some, and I quote, Musk on Musk action. Let's <laughs> leave that hanging there for a moment. So we're getting two Musks for the price of one in the news cycle lately as Elon and his brother Kimball get investigated by the SEC for alleged insider trading relating to, surprise, surprise, Elon Musk's Twitter account. Mike, you've been reading up on this, so my first question to you is where on earth do the Musk family get their names from? Elon and Kimball. I don't think I've ever heard two stranger first names. <laughs> well, Elon actually changed his name to Elona on Twitter. Um, so I, What's, what's the thinking behind that? I think, so this is the mad part. Listen to this. So I wrote a, a piece around kind of Elon Musk's like most influential tweets, but it was inspired. He was talking about crypto on Monday. Yeah. And obviously there was the the bump in uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum and Doge. But I wrote an article that wasn't the richest man in the world challenging Vladimir Putin to a single arm combat. On the same day, you tweeted that to the Putin. So I'm not sure. It, it, it's, it's, it's just like organized chaos, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think you probably spread that to all of Twitter, really. Um, so getting serious, okay, what's actually going on here? Um, this SEC investigation into into Elon Musk and his brother is this a serious investigation? Do you think there's some weight behind this, or is this just an Elon related or another Elon related related news story? No, it is quite serious. Like, isn't it's if if it's proven, it's like very clear cut insider trading. So essentially, what happened was you remember back. Last November, I think it was, Elon Musk put out this Twitter poll saying, oh, should I sell 10% of my Twitter stock to pay income tax? His Tesla stock. His Tesla stock, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's very influential in Twitter stock, I'd say, <laughs> as well, but for different reasons. 
And like, there was so much more to this. It's actually quite slimy. Like, as in, he has basically a fifteen incoming fifteen billion dollar income tax expense um, from expiring stock options that were granted back in two thousand and twelve or something. So he was going to sell a bunch of stock anyways to pay for that. Mm. But instead of being seen as the CEO who's selling stock and it's mania and why is Musk hate Tesla all of a sudden? It's ah, oh, he's this quirky guy who puts up polls and is actually following through with it and yada yada but um yeah. the big thing about it was that kimball kimball um who's the tesla board of director you know him he's the flute who's always wearing a cowboy hat <laughs> 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 he he sold a hundred million 108 million worth of tesla stock the day before the poll went out okay so like i mean if he knew about it that's pretty clear insider trading so yeah yeah, it could be pretty serious repercussions. I'm not sure like what will actually eventually happen. I think there's a good chance Elon Musk didn't know he was going to put out the Twitter poll until he typed it. So yeah. I don't know what you can prove, but it is it's it's very serious allegations. Like yeah, well, let's pull it back then to to te- like what this means for Tesla investors. So if there's this investigation going on into you know the the co-founder and CEO of this company and another person who's very very closely involved, I think Kimball's on the 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 board of of Tesla. Maybe I'm mistaken on that, but no, he is. Yeah, with with this investigation going on, what might this mean for Tesla shareholders? Are are they going to to feel pain because of this investigation? Well, like what can they do? He's been doing this for seven years now or however long he's had a twitter account where it's like i think they just accepted all right that is a business risk yeah you know uh like he's been sanctioned by the sec they had to bring in a in-house counsel to monitor all his tweets he's been fined he's been ousted as the chairman of the uh board from his twitter activity uh, like as in he, i think there's another investigation into another tweet um so I think he's been so influential for the company and he's actually created such a vast amount of wealth and so much of Tesla is Elon Musk that they're not really going to be able to rein him. This is just what he does. He's this bored billionaire in his ivory modular home kind of creating chaos. Like He's like a Gen Z Bond villain, you know? So I, I for, a, for a Tesla shareholder, I think you've just accepted that Elon Musk is mad at this stage and that's fine. The stock has done well. Um, I don't know what more I can say. Get off the fence, did, Mike. <laughs> did I read somewhere that he's he's appealing that decision about his tweets being monitored because he like said it's just unrealistic that someone would monitor my tweets? Yeah, he is. He is. <laughs> while there's more SEC SEC investigations coming the other way, he's like, well, actually, I think there's a problem with this one. <laughs> but like, I think you have made a good point there, Mike, and it's something I kind of want to go back to is that. Tesla is Elon Musk. Elon Musk is Tesla. It's impossible to you know pull them apart at this point. Um, I, 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 whether you're a Tesla investor or not, is this a very real consideration you have to take now if you were to open uh, open a position in Tesla as an investor? Yeah, I think so. Like, is in he's getting investigated for insider trading. He could go to prison. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, it's a very real possibility. Like, I don't think he will. I assume there'll be something come up or whatever. But like. Yeah, he's got like five open investigations against him. He's in a court case, like, defending himself against, like, was very clearly, like, enriching himself and his family against Tesla shareholders. Tesla shareholders are suing him for, like, 13 billion quid. It's mad. Like, 
And he's worth like whatever, 200 billion, so it just doesn't matter. You know, he'll put what? up another Twitter poll and sell some more stock. <laughs> well, Vicky, keep... what's what what kind of multiple do you add on for Elon Musk? <laughs> I think for a lot of people, it would be something that you'd like reduce the multiple for. But um, for like hardcore Tesla shareholders, it's definitely something that like they're they're backing. And I don't know if there's a single business out there that would be more impacted by the CEO leaving. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Maybe one good thing. Facebook. Uh, true. One good thing about Elon Musk's Twitter account, though, is it's given us plenty to talk about here on this podcast. So uh, I say keep tweeting, Elon. Let's move on then. And there's loads of stuff going on in my Wall Street at the minute. But instead of listing it all out as usual, I've decided to actually just show you. So what follows is next is a short clip from this week's Stock of the Month podcast that was posted in my Wall Street just a couple of days ago. In this clip, you can hear me and Anne-Marie chat about our most recent Stock of the Month pick in more depth and answer some questions that my Wall Street community has sent in about it. In typical Anne-Marie fashion too, she even gives away the name of the company in this clip, so enjoy. Hi there and welcome to the Stock of the Month podcast. This is an exclusive feature for my Wall Street subscribers where we chat about our most recent Stock of the Month selection in more depth and try to answer any questions you might have about it. I'm James and with me here today is Anne-Marie, one of the analysts here at my Wall Street. So Anne-Marie, another month, another non-tech stock being picked as Stock of the Month. I suppose given such volatility on the market recently, particularly affecting last year's or the last two years high growth tech stocks, is this another stock pick like Costco um, from last month that could be considered a bit of a safe harbour at this time? Definitely. I think in volatility, you can go one of two ways. You can either go into tried and true brick and mortar, or you can go towards massive cap tech stocks, like basically you're just fang players. I leaned towards this month's pick, which is Planet Fitness, because it seemed to have this nice short-term upside thanks to its COVID recovery. And I thought it made an interesting thesis for a stock of the month. Hope you enjoyed that. So remember, you can listen to the rest of this Stock of the Month podcast by simply creating an account at mywallstreet.com. There's a link in the notes to find that. So let's move on. And we're replacing Mailbag this week with a new segment called Analyst Insights. So here we'll take a look at some of the recent insights that our analyst team has written for My Wall Street and chat about them a little bit more. This week, I wanted to come back to some of the recent first looks that we'd written about newly IPO'd companies. So for anyone who doesn't know, first looks are pieces that we write within the My Wall Street product, which go over usually a recently IPO'd or a recently floated company and kind of go through them, pull apart the, the bull arguments and the bear arguments and kind of give a perspective. Here at my Wall Street, we typically don't add new companies to our shortlist until they've been public for at least two quarters, but that doesn't mean we're keeping an eye on them. And this is a place where you can really get that first look on new companies on the market. So we've had pieces on Confluent, Olaplex and Oakley recently, all companies that have listed within the last year. Rory, the first year of public life for these companies seems to have been pretty rough. Uh, is that a fair assessment? I think that, well, <laughs> let's go back a second. <laughs> The first life of the first uh, year of pretty much every business uh, that went public in the last twelve months has been been rough. You know, we were looking at a number of recently IPO businesses, and I went back and looked at my notes. There was a general theme, I suppose, of there was a lot of what I would say looked like very promising businesses, but the valuations being attached were just you know unjustifiable in most cases. So I went back and had a little quick look at some of them and saw how they're doing. Olo Inc., which I thought was a very interesting business, is now 65% since it went public. Affirm Holdings, which saw quite big price appreciation at the end of last year, is now down 70%. Roblox, again, up on an upward trajectory at one stage, now down 50%. Coinbase, down 50%. Robinhood, down 67%. UiPath, which I actually think is quite a, an interesting business, down 64%. Coupang, down 70%. Warby Parker, down 50%. Rivian down 67% and 
and all birds down 82%. Wow. Um, so what you're saying is it's the market's fault, it's not these companies' <laughs> fault. Well, no, I mean, it's not, no, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> don't you don't get the market angry at me. Uh, no, what I'm saying is you know, there was obviously a huge amount of, um, I don't know, optimism, uh, positivity yeah. around, around newly IPO businesses around this time last year. Um, and that has kind of fallen off a cliff in many ways. But I chose to kind of take a second look at two companies in particular. One was Olaplex and one was Oatly. So two interesting businesses, both consumer-facing brands, both generated a huge amount of interest from retail investors when they came public, and both, it has to be said, like came with really outrageous valuations. You know, looking at Oatly first, when I wrote about it, it was trading at $12.8 billion market cap, which was a 26x sales multiple. Uh, wow. Now, as for, for Oden? Yeah, yeah. Like not a tech company. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, as I've said many times before, sales multiples are useful when valuing some types of businesses that maybe aren't yet profitable or potentially could be profitable if they wanted to be but who have decided to reinvest heavily in their business. So these types of business we're talking about are typically high margin, high growth, recurring revenue business. So Mike, as you said, tech businesses, SaaS businesses typically. And the reason it's useful for those businesses is because they have zero marginal costs. So once you build, once they've built a product, it doesn't really matter whether, you know, a million people use it or 10 million people use it. It doesn't cost them pretty much anymore. Or if, the, or if it does, it's, it's, it's very low. Um, so those businesses can generate really, really high gross margins uh, and they can they can achieve operational leverage and convert future earnings into revenue or sorry, future revenue into earnings quite easily. Um, Oatly makes oat milk. Uh, so it's not really in that category. Uh, <laughs> once, you, time, once you milk one oat, yeah. <laughs> it's just milked for good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um at the time i mean at the time oatly was growing very rapidly um but they had just 30 percent gross margins and those margins were even contracting at the time and um, so price to sales shouldn't have even come into the conversation with a business like this and 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 since then the business has had a real disaster of a year and um, you know they ipo'd with much hype they had star-studded investors which included oprah winfrey jay-z natalie uh, portman howard schultz of starbucks um, they had a huge marketing campaign, which included a Super Bowl ad, um, and they even signed a partnership with Starbucks. Um, then they tried to kind of, in order to kind of fulfill all this demand, they tried to expand it production into America. They had so many problems with their factories, which caused huge issues. And, and actually, the Wall Street Journal did a really good piece yesterday, the same day I did my piece, which outlines a lot of those issues. Weeks after this, Starbucks launched their Oatly products, they basically couldn't fulfill the supply and they had to remove them from the app until they were restocked. Starbucks ended up taking on one of their competitors as a partner. Uh, their early adopters, which have been kind of their, their way of penetrating the market in the first place, these kind of cool, hip coffee shops and kind of specialist grocers were left with absolutely no supply and had to, had to go to competitors as well. Um, they were overtaken by Planet Oat as the biggest oat milk brand in the United States. And the stock is down 80% since, uh, since it went public. Um, which it seems to be kind of one of these issues that you can see a lot of the times with newly IPO businesses, which I'm going to kind of tentatively call the pure play problem, which is that if something's kind of, if people are talking about a particular thing and it's getting a lot of traction, 
uh, you can end up having these businesses that are that come in and the IPO and they're like the only pure play in that space. Yeah, beyond, when you were talking there, Beyond Meat was, was coming to mind for me. Yeah, Beyond Meat's an excellent example as well. People were talking about plant-based meat and, and there was loads of plant-based meat, you know, suppliers even then, um, including kind of their biggest rival, Impossible Burger. But because Beyond Meat was the only company that you could invest in just on that premise, it got crazy. Multiple investors willing to pay up huge amounts of money for it. I think Tesla in the early years was very much a pure play as well. You know, it was the only kind of electric car company you could mm. The um, only company in. had Elon Musk. <laughs> so the only company had Elon Musk. And then what happens with pure play problems is at some point uh, competitors come in, you know, sometimes much bigger competitors, and they decide they want a bit of the action and they have things like distribution and, and more, more operational leverage and they can kind of price people out of it. And I think that's kind of what's happening with Oatly. Olaplex, uh, the other one I looked at, also ridiculously valued uh, at one point nearly a $20 billion company uh, for what was a hair care product. Again, you know, not something that you would typically think of in terms of kind of adding a price to sales multiple to. Uh, and it's since lost 40% of its value since it since it went public and still trades at 21 times sales and 63 times earnings. Uh, I think so, you know, Olaplex does have better margins, though, I think, no? Yeah, I'm, I'm about to get to that. I was Sorry. like, you know, when you look into Olaplex, <laughs> when you look into Olaplex, it actually is a lot more like a tech company. Um, Shampooing than, as a service. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has, you know, for example, it has over 100 patents. Uh, it has an omni-channel approach that leverages stylists and influencers to promote its brand. And it's got 79% gross margins, which is pretty much unheard of for a company that makes a physical product, i.e. a company that has marginal costs. And so, they, I mean, they were two businesses that I thought were, were quite interesting, kind of six months to a year on, um, both similar in some ways, but very different in other ways. Still some problems with Olaplex, I would argue. that There's a couple of, you know, they're their kind of growth plans might be a bit more ambitious than they than than they think they are. Yeah, it's really reflective, though, I think, of, you know, we always say, as I said at the start of this piece, you know, we always wait here at my Wall Street for two quarters to add a company to the shortlist. But it's very, very hard as an investor not to be caught up in the hype of, especially a company like Olaplex or Oatly, these exciting new companies come to market. You know, you want a bit of them. You know, they're probably often companies you actually use yourself in your day-to-day life. It's very, very hard as an investor to to hold yourself back and not invest in these when the hype cycle is at its peak. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that FOMO is a real thing. <laughs> it does catch a lot of people out. And I think it's important for investors to know that IPOs are, you know, typically do end up under, under, underperforming the market. And there's a kind of asymmetry of knowledge there as well and information where the person selling, which is the company, knows much more than you're going to know at that point. And so it's going to take a little bit of time for that kind of information to, to enter the market and, to, and for the market to kind of find a price that's comfortable with. Yeah, you talked about a few companies that are struggling. Is there any first look looks you've done recently? Any companies that you are feeling a little bit more positive about? Uh, well, the most recent addition to the My Wall Street shortlist was a first look, so I won't oh. give. I won't. I won't pull an Amory and get the whole <laughs> the whole thing. But if you want to check it out in the My Wall Street app, you can. There you go. That's it, Rory. ABC always be closing. Uh, so let's finish out then today with an elevator pitch. So I don't know how I forgot to do it, but I should have asked you guys to pitch me an Irish company or a green company or something. But just went with the classic. So pitch me a company that's on your watch list at the moment on extra points if it's Irish or happens to be a green company or even has a green logo. Mike, do you want to go first? Um, I do, but it's not green or 
any of that that you just said. <laughs> Uh, so the company I'm pitching is uh, Tor Industries. It's actually the largest manufacturer of recreational vehicles in the world, so RVs. It sells kind of what you would associate as a typical RV, the kind of Robert De Niro in, uh, was it Meet the Parents? Yeah. Driving the big bus. <laughs> but uh, it actually makes more money from its tow bus, so they're essentially caravans. And it owns a number of brands, including uh, Airstream, Heartland RV, Jayco, Living Light RV as well. So it controls about... 40 to 50% of the uh, recreational vehicle market in North America. And I, I, as I was researching, I was just impressed at how popular RVs actually are. When you're in Ireland, you kind of don't really appreciate how big the industry is. So over 11% of U.S. households own an RV, and the age is actually getting younger. So 38% are now millennials. Um, it's a much cheaper alternative to a family holiday and the thing was, it had a huge boon around COVID times because it was basically the safest way to travel. So Tor is kind of catching up with this demand. It's a $17 billion backlog of orders from, uh, from that's the increased demand and also from supply chain constraints and kind of everything that's been going on as well. So yeah, really interesting company, loaded defensive properties to it, high return on equity, dividend, really low valuation. So yeah, I think it's an interesting company. The reason we're not that mad about RVs here in Ireland is because you can't drive for more than five hours in any direction on this island without running into the sea. So uh, they don't really have the appeal of that they might have in the US. Cool company though. Thanks for that, Mike. Uh, Rory, what about you? What company are you pitching me? Um, yeah, so I mean, recently we've been thinking, or I've been thinking a lot about kind of the impacts of Apple's new privacy um, policies. And we've talked previously about what that was going to mean for businesses like Facebook and by extension um, companies like Shopify, which rely heavily on Facebook. So I decided to take kind of look around and see, was there any kind of other advertising, digital advertising businesses that may potentially kind of be the beneficiaries of this? And I came up, well, I came across this business that all the kids are using, which is called Snap. Um, and it appears to be a kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of wondering if it's a genuine alternative to the Facebook-Google advertising duopoly. Um, it's a business that, you know, we kind of mocked when it first uh, came public. And, and I, I don't think at the time they really had a proper business there. They just had a lot of eyeballs. But now they do seem to have very strong mind share and usage among 13 to 24-year-olds. It's a traditionally hard market to target. They haven't, you know, they've, they've, they've got... I think it's 319 million DAUs, but haven't yet made a dent really outside of kind of the US and Europe. Um, there seems to be a lot of room for them to expand their ARPU. Uh, I kind of, because I don't use it, I kind of, this was interesting. You know, Snapchat, it has a kind of closed group mechanic, which means they're not the same as Instagram. Um, there's also a performative mechanic, which means they're slightly similar to TikTok, but the closed group element means they're not exactly the same. So where it sits in the kind of social media landscape is quite interesting for me. And in terms of what kind of this Apple tracking transparency would mean for someone like Snapchat, I, it seems definitely in their last quarter, this kind of more focused audience means maybe that they can better group users without the need for third party tracking. Um, and I mean, it's very early days, but advertisers seem to at least be open to testing Snap's first party ad tools for the moment. Um, seen good user and user monetization growth um, across across all their markets, really. And, you know, I think even though competition's intense, it's one I'm kind of keeping an eye on as a, as a kind of 
dark horse in this race. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really interesting company. Definitely one that, that had a glow up over the last few years. I remember when they first went public, they were fairly uh, written off, but um, yeah, definitely becoming more relevant. So that's it for today's Stock Club. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and also make sure to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever podcasting platform platform you listen to us on that's it for us here today thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next week ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.